As you know, none of the evidence in David's case exists anymore. KCPD can't explain what happened to the evidence, but some of the people I've talked to within the department have speculated that it was destroyed by fire. Coincidental, right? So in August of 2018, there was a fire in the KCPD evidence storage building. That fire was later determined to be caused by a faulty cell phone in an evidence bag. An estimated 50% of all evidence stored there was destroyed by fire, smoke, or water from efforts to put the fire out. My biggest question is, even if the evidence in David's case was part of that 50%, why was it never tested after 1974? I know, and you're about to find out, that as a result of the testing done in the days following David's murder, there were some pretty shocking things found. Things that, in my mind, should have been enough to file charges against Funston. So, in this episode, I want to take a look at what we know based on police records from 1974 in regard to Funston and the evidence. I'm Dylan Kingsley, and this is episode 5 of Burn, the unsolved murder of David Iman. First, remember Rick, David's neighborhood friend? When I talked to him last year, he told me a haunting story about an interaction he had with David sometime in the few days prior to the murder. It was almost the end of summer, and Rick would be turning 16 the next week, so he was out in the driveway working on his car. David rode by on his bike and stopped to talk. Here's what Rick said. I noticed he kept looking over his shoulder. Every time a car would go by, he'd look over his shoulder and then try to see who was in the car. And I was like, David, what's going on? Oh, nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. I was like, no, you're paranoid as hell. You need to tell me what's going on. Maybe my dad can help you. Both Rick's dad and uncle were police officers for the Kansas City Police Department around the time of David's death. Rick wasn't sure if either of them were still working for KCPD on August 14, 1974. As he rode off, he wasn't even to the end of our property yet. He yelled, Harry Funston. I didn't know who Harry Funston was. He made like a big circle in the street and came back and he said, if anything happens to me, Harry Funston. When Rick found out about what happened to David, he told his dad that he felt he needed to go to the police. Rick's dad was hesitant and told him the police probably wouldn't be able to use that as evidence anyway. Rick insisted. He did finally call the police and instead of a detective... They sent out a uniformed car, and I told him, and he left, didn't really comment or, you know, say that's good or that's bad or anything, really. He just took down the information, and within two hours, my uncle called, and he spoke with my dad, and he said, you tell Rick that if he doesn't want the same thing to happen to him, to keep his mouth shut. So somebody within that two hours time called my uncle, somebody high up in the police department, and told him to tell me to keep my mouth shut. I asked Rick if anyone ever talked to him again about his statement. No. No detectives ever called, want more information, that Metro Squad, nobody ever called. 
you know, it was just gone. As a 15-year-old, Rick felt that he had done all he could do. He was scared, and so were his dad and uncle and grandfather. They all told him that when he got his driver's license, he wasn't to drive into Raymore under any circumstances. There's no record of Rick's interview in the police reports. I've often wondered why, out of all of his friends, David would tell something like that to Rick. The boys had grown apart in the few years prior, and while they saw each other around and were friendly, the boys ran in different groups and didn't hang out. I've wondered if Rick was mistaken. Admittedly, at times, I've even wondered if he was lying. But Rick has nothing to gain from fabricating a story like this. And to me, it kind of makes sense. Rick knew David when they were young. David's dad, arguably the most important person in his life, was close with Rick's dad. And maybe the fact that Rick didn't have the same group of friends made David more willing to tell Rick. Maybe David told him knowing that Rick had connections to the police department through his dad and uncle. Or maybe Rick just pushed David hard enough that day about his strange behavior that David decided to tell him just in case. None of David's other friends or Linda ever mentioned David having issues with any police officers. I'm sure a lot of them knew who Harry Funston was, but not a single kid mentioned his name in their interview. This was also strange to me, but I realized if I was 15 and one of my friends was found burned alive and dumped, and I knew that friend had issues with a certain police officer, I probably wouldn't be trusting anyone in a uniform coming around asking me questions. On the morning David's body was found, Harry Funston told KCPD officers he would be checking himself into the hospital later that day for a planned medical procedure. Back in 1974, it was still pretty common to see announcements in the newspaper about when someone had dinner at a friend's house or when someone moved, and even when someone was admitted to and checked out of the hospital. Because of that, I know Funston was in the hospital several times throughout the years, but I don't know the reason for his hospital stays. Two hours after Jack Caproon came forward, police visited Orville Slaver, the Raymore chief of police, and Richard Flowers, the Raymore fire chief. Slaver seemed surprised when the Metro squad detectives told him that Funston had been suspected by several departments in suspicious fires. The only problem he had with Funston was his temper, but he had been talked to and Slaver thought the issue was somewhat resolved. Slaver told the detectives he would keep their conversation private and that he would watch Funston for any unusual behavior. Richard Flowers said he knew Funston and thought he was capable of anything. Flowers, along with the men from Cass County Sheriff's Department, had been working on Funston in relation to several fires, but hadn't been able to prove anything. He said Funston had a bad temper and didn't get along with people. Even though the Metro Squad spoke with Orville Slaver on the 14th, they didn't search the patrol car that Funston used the night before. In the next two days, all 21 pieces of evidence collected at the crime scene were tested. All of the clothing that had not been completely burned from David's body contained significant levels of lead and bromine, which is consistent with leaded gasoline. The film canister taken from David's left rear pants pocket was said to have been crushed by significant force. The green leafy material in the canister was marijuana. The rope used to bind David at the wrists and knees is possibly the single most important piece of evidence in this entire case. The rope was half-inch hemp rope with four secondary strands, one twist per two inches clockwise, and six primary strands with one twist per inch counterclockwise. 
One of the secondary strands of the rope contained a marker cord displaying the words made by American Manufacturing Company, Inc., Brooklyn, 22, NY, St. Louis Cordage Mills, St. Louis, 4, MO. Police contacted St. Louis Cordage Mills Company, who sent a section of their half-inch four-strand manila rope and a section of their marker cord. This rope matched the rope used to tie David up in dimensions, number of primary and secondary strands, fiber type, and twist direction. The marker cord also matched the one from the crime scene, except on it was an additional AMCO emblem. I assume that this AMCO emblem was added to more recently manufactured rope, so the rope used to tie David up was an older rope. On the 15th, police searched the patrol car used by Funston and got Raymore PD radio logs from the night of August 13th. The exterior and interior of the patrol car were processed and eight cards of prints were lifted. None of them matched David. Police vacuumed the vehicle and collected hairs, none of which belonged to David either. The trunk had a thick layer of dirt and dust that hadn't been disturbed. After police processed the vehicle, they went to the Kansas City mortuary to collect inked prints of David's feet and toes. There's no explanation for this in the report. The first activity noted on the radio log for patrol car 9B on August 13th was a vehicle check at 7.24 p.m. We know that Funston worked 7 o'clock p.m. to 3 a.m. One line of the radio log says, call Cass County, and then another word. This was 9.05 p.m. The whole radio log is handwritten, and it's a copy of a copy that's almost 50 years old, so it's difficult to read. I never thought much of that other word until a few months ago. I was more concerned with figuring out the police codes listed and marking the noted locations on Google Maps to see where Funston had been that night. But as I was looking at the log one night, I realized what that word was. Remember Dean from episode 3? the boy in jail for burglarizing the chainsaw store, who rode with Funston and committed other burglaries for him. That word on the radio log is his last name. Like a lot of things about this case, I don't know for sure, but it seems as though August 13th was one of the nights Funston tried unsuccessfully to get Dean checked out of the jail. The radio log only says call Cass County and then Dean's last name. But the next activity noted for patrol car 9B is 10-8, or in service, in Harrisonville, 45 minutes later at 9.50. The Cass County Jail where Dean was in custody is in Harrisonville. I can't think of any reason Funston would have been in Harrisonville other than to try to get Dean to ride with him so he could find out where his stolen belongings were. Dean recently told someone else he wasn't interested in speaking with me. I don't know if Dean remembers that night specifically, but I passed along the message that I have a feeling that if Dean would have gone with Funston on August 13th, I would be looking into his murder instead of David's, and I truly believe that. We know Funston had a temper, especially with kids. We know he was grooming Dean in one way or another, and we know he was angry with Dean about his house being robbed. Funston took an out-of-service break for two minutes at 10.40 and then called off-duty at 11 o'clock p.m. Again, we know from all the statements in Episode 3 that Funston always worked until 3 a.m. and was out even later. Raymore PD only had a dispatcher on until midnight, at which point both Raymore patrol cars would be dispatched by the Cass County Sheriff's Office. When contacted, 
Cass County Sheriff Bill Goh said his radio logs from that night only showed one call from Funston. The call was at 3.24 a.m. when he discovered David's body. If Funston was off-duty, as the Raymore radio log says, why was he patrolling the area, eventually coming across David's body? If he was on duty, why was there no communication from him to dispatch between 11 p.m. and 3.24 a.m. when he had been in regular contact with the Raymore dispatcher all night? Finally, on August 19th, five days after David's body was discovered, police called Funston in for questioning. That five-day time lapse is one of the most maddening parts of this case. Police knew on day one that Funston was possibly involved in David's death because Jack Caparoon came forward. Although he checked into the hospital on the afternoon of the 14th, he was released on the 16th, meaning he was home and could have been questioned then. Those five days make me question more than anything else if this case involves a cover-up. If you ignore that Funston was given five days to possibly clean his vehicles, get rid of evidence, and get his story straight, you can brush everything else off as incompetence on the part of the police department, or even just ignorance. But the fact that they knew just a few hours after David was found that Funston had a violent past with kids in the area and even his own family, and had what seemed to be an obsession with fire, means they should have acted quickly. Funston was called at 9.30 a.m. on the 19th and asked to report to the KCPD headquarters for questioning. He arrived at 12.45 p.m. and was read his Miranda rights. He signed an interrogation waiver and agreed to speak to officers about David Iman. When asked about his activities on the night of the 13th, Funston said he went on duty at 7 o'clock p.m. and had a reserve officer named Al Smith riding with him until around midnight. Nothing of note happened while Al was riding with him. This seems to be backed up by the radio log with the exception of calling or visiting Dean at the Cass County Jail. Around midnight, Funston dropped Al off at the police station where his car was parked and then followed Al to his house to borrow a book from him. Al Smith later told police that he met Funston at City Hall around 8 o'clock p.m. and rode with him until 11 or 11.30. At this time, Funston took him home and Al gave Funston five or six hardcore sex magazines. Al said he didn't know what time Funston ended his shift, but based on other times that he had ridden with him, he probably secured around 2 a.m. He said Funston never worked after 3. The last time Al had seen Funston was the night of the 18th, when the men and their wives went to a movie in downtown Kansas City. Funston said he then sat in the parking lot of Bill's Auto Supply in Raymore for about an hour. While he was sitting there, Sergeant Pete Bybee came by in his personal vehicle and the men spoke briefly. Pete Bybee was also interviewed later and stated that on the night of the 13th, he was in patrol car 9 and worked from 6.30 to 11. He said that night was quiet and he heard and saw very little of Funston. Bybee made no mention of talking to Funston in that parking lot and there is no record that police asked him about it. According to Funston, he would have been in that parking lot talking with Pete Bybee sometime between midnight and 1 a.m., the same time that David started his walk home from Linda's house. Police also knew this by the time they spoke with Funston and Bybee, so how did they not feel it was important enough to verify what Funston said? At 1 o'clock a.m., Funston said he drove through town and checked a few buildings, then drove out to Kentucky Road, the road just east of where David's body was found, to check on the house of some people who were out of town. 
he checked County Line Road and drove back to town on 58 Highway. Around 2.30 a.m., he said he set up his radar and stopped two speeders, whom he warned and released without getting their names. He then drove around town, checked the school and post office, then took 58 Highway to Madison Street onto County Line going west. As Funston passed Southwest Peterson Road, he came to a low spot and said he noticed smoke moving across his headlights. He kept driving and put his high beams on. That's when he saw David's body. He got out of his patrol car, walked around the body, and estimated it had been burning for 45 minutes to an hour before he found it. Although he didn't see any flames, Funston said he contemplated using his fire extinguisher on the body, but decided against it so he wouldn't destroy any evidence. At this time, he made the 3.24 a.m. call to the Cass County Sheriff's Department to notify them. The interrogating officers told Funston at this point in the interrogation that his name had come up as a possible suspect, and Funston said he expected that. When asked if he would be willing to take a polygraph test, he said he was. A polygraph test was immediately administered by the polygraph examiner, and Funston was asked the following questions. Did you tie the boy up? Did you set the boy on fire? Did you kill David Iman? Funston answered no to these questions. He was asked the same questions a total of three times. He failed the polygraph test every time. It was the opinion of the polygraph examiner that Funston was involved in the homicide. Funston was advised that he had failed and the officers even outright accused Funston of the murder. Funston showed no emotion and replied only by saying, I don't know what you're talking about and it must be wrong, meaning the polygraph test. He was also unfazed when officers said that he was suspected of several arsons. Interrogating officers noted that based on previous interrogation experience, they felt Funston was listening to their questioning but wasn't actually hearing what they were saying. He looked as though he was tuning out. They proposed to Funston that maybe he was mentally ill and killed David but was blocking it out due to the seriousness of the crime. Funston responded that he wasn't mental and remembered everything he had ever been involved in. Funston did agree that David's murder and the arsons he was suspected of were not acts of a rational, sane person, and stated that if he had committed these crimes, help would be necessary. Still, he insisted he had no knowledge of the murder or the fires other than the details that were part of official records. One of the interrogating officers, who had known and worked with Funston for some time, told Funston that there was no shame in admitting that he needed help and that it would probably be more acceptable to his family and friends than the rigors of a first-degree murder trial. Funston's eyes reddened and began to water, and he rested his arm on the back of his chair when his father was brought up. He was seemingly unbothered by the mention of his wife and daughter and how they would react to this whole situation. He said they would be upset, but that they would be okay. But his dad, he said couldn't handle this, and would probably commit suicide. The only other time Funston got excited, as the reporting officers described him, was when they mentioned the statement of Ronnie, the boy who lived and rode with Funston while he was with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. Funston was told the details of Ronnie's statement, about driving him by the apartment of the man who had died in a fire and laughing, and about trying to put cigarettes out on the boy's skin. Funston's response was, that little motherfucker is a goddamn liar. Why don't you put that little bastard on the polygraph? 
All of the interrogating officers agreed that several times Funston was close to confessing. Funston would cover his eyes but quickly compose himself and return to being emotionless. At one point, Funston said, I just can't imagine this even happening to me. I've always tried to do and be right, but I guess this isn't the way, because all it brings you is a bunch of shit, and it seems like that is what my life has always been. Shit. The same officer who had worked with Funston previously wrote in his report that Funston had a very violent temper and would become very angry with people he was arresting for unknown reasons. Funston would always look for kids having beer parties and would bring the kids in. If the kids talked, he would tell them to shut up and only talk if he told them to. He would make these same kids believe he was king and that they had better do what he said. The officer said that during the interrogation, Funston was very different than his typical loud and angry self. He was meek and couldn't be made angry. He seemed to want to cry but couldn't quite let it out, and his main concern was his father. Around 6.30 p.m., while Funston was still being interrogated, police arrived at the Funston's home at 105 Madison Street in Raymore. Funston's wife Ruth met officers there and seemed willing to cooperate, but was concerned about being late to a monthly club meeting for which she acted as secretary. Ruth said that on the 13th, Funston left for work around 6.30 p.m. and was due to get off at 3 a.m. Yet again, this verifies his typical working hours. When she left for work around 7 o'clock a.m. on the 14th, Funston still wasn't home. She was slightly concerned but had heard about the body being found and realized that's where her husband was. She didn't see Funston until around 7 o'clock p.m. that evening when she went to visit him in the hospital. Harry talked very little about finding the body but told Ruth he thought the mafia was involved. Funston was operated on on the morning of the 15th and later that evening called Chief Slaver to see if anything else had been found out about the case. Chief Slaver told him he knew nothing more than what Funston was already aware of. Funston was released from the hospital on the 16th and according to Ruth had spent all of this time resting. Ruth asked officers why they had taken an interest in Harry regarding the crime, stating, He's found a lot of bodies but has never gone through this. The officer responded to Ruth by telling her that Funston had been given a polygraph test and asked her how she thought he had done. She said just fine. Officers told Ruth that Funston had failed the polygraph test and she had no look of surprise or change in emotion. She did say that he might have flunked it because he was still in pain and running a fever from his surgery. When asked, Ruth said Funston got along with everyone in the community just fine and that some kids would even ride with him on patrol because they enjoyed it. The one exception, she said, was that several months ago, some people in town had tried to start a petition to get Funston removed from the police force because of some minor traffic problems he was having with a kid in town. The reporting officers spent nearly three hours with Ruth and noted that at no time did she seem anxious or concerned that Funston was a suspect in David's murder. She said she didn't believe that he was involved and told officers she would have no issues telling them if she thought he was because he would need serious help. Police took the following items from Funston's home. A black leather belt with a silver buckle, a mace holder and chemical mace, a handcuff holder and handcuffs, and a cartridge case with super velocity hollow points for a 38 special. A piece of lined notebook paper with Ford motor credit and several dollar amounts written on it, 
a piece of paper with the name and address of a business located in Springfield, Missouri, a piece of paper with directions to a house and the address of Wiggins Painting in Grandview, Missouri, and a black notebook containing clippings, certificates, and pictures. Police also photographed and processed both of Funston's vehicles, a 1972 Ford and a 1968 Ford. In the 1972 Ford, police collected some binding twine, a three-strand rope and pulleys, and a short length of four-strand rope. Buckle up, because this is insane. That short length of four-strand rope was taken to the crime lab and determined to be half-inch hemp, consisting of the exact same four secondary and six primary strands as the rope used to tie David up. The marker cord was also the exact same as the rope from the crime scene. It did not contain the AMCO emblem, as in the standard sent in by St. Louis Cordage Mills. Yes, you're hearing me correctly. Funston had in his personal vehicle the exact same rope as the one that was used to tie David up. How this alone wasn't enough to file charges on Funston is beyond me. I reached out to a renowned knot expert recently, hoping he could tell me anything that might connect Funston. I thought maybe the knot would point to someone in a specific field or with special training, or maybe even the rope itself was only used by people in specific professions. I sent him some pictures of David's body at the crime scene and told him very few details about the case, as not to skew his observations. The first thing he noticed was that this was a common knot, one we all learned when we learned to tie our shoes. The second thing, which I had never considered before, was that David was either dead or unconscious when he was bound. Since we know that David was alive when the fire was set, and we know that the rope was partially burned in the fire, we can assume that David was unconscious when he was tied up. The expert said he could tell this because the knot was on the underside of David's hands. It looks as though David's killer either lifted David's hands to David's chest and tied the knot from above, or lifted David's arms above his own head and tied the knot from above and behind David. He said if David had been conscious, the knot would have been tied on the top of David's hands and wrists, not the underside. Also, because it was such a simple, loose knot, if David had been conscious, he would have easily been able to remove the knot from his hands. Because of this, he believes the rope was used to aid the killer in moving David's body, rather than to restrict his movements. What I imagine is David in the back seat or trunk of a vehicle. David is unconscious, so the killer tied his hands first and ran the rope down to David's knees, where he wrapped the rope around several times and made another knot. The rope enabled David's killer to move him out of the vehicle. This also explains the film canister in David's pocket being crushed. With David unconscious, he would have been dead weight, and even with the help of the rope, the killer likely would have dropped him from the height of the vehicle. And this is all just my speculation. Funston returned home that night around 9.45 p.m. and police were still there. An officer wrote in the report that it was very apparent that Ruth became tense in the presence of her husband. That same officer questioned Ruth again two days later at her place of employment. He wrote that it was immediately apparent that her attitude had changed since the 19th. At this time, she seemed frightened. She said after police left her home on the night of the 19th, she and Funston sat down to talk about the situation. Funston told her that he didn't understand why he flunked the polygraph test 
and that he had signed the search waiver because he knew there was nothing in the house. The officer asked Ruth if Funston had threatened her in any way since the 19th, and she said no. He also asked what she meant in her initial interview when she said Funston had found numerous bodies. Ruth said he hadn't actually found any bodies. She just meant that he had been involved in numerous investigations. Ruth asked the officer how long they planned on hassling Funston about this, as he had already been suspended from Raymore PD and would likely lose his job. Police did stop hassling Harry Funston. Actually, they never spoke to him again after his interrogation on August 19th. He did lose his job with Raymore PD, according to an old Casey Star article, because of a technicality. And by September 23rd, Funston was living in Salina, Kansas, and had applied for a position with a financial company. More on Funston's life after David's murder in the next episode. So just to recap, police waited five days to question Funston. When they finally did, they felt that several times during the interrogation, Funston was close to confessing. He teared up and got angry and eventually failed a polygraph test about his involvement in the murder. His wife said that he might have failed because of the pain and fever he was experiencing from his surgery a few days earlier, but he was well enough to attend a movie with friends the night before he was interrogated. Funston's house and vehicles sat unsearched for those same five days. When they did search them, they found an exact match to the rope used to tie David up, also lacking the AMCO emblem printed on the rope sent in by St. Louis Cordage Mills. The Raymore PD radio logs from the night of the 13th showed that Funston ended his tour of duty at 11 o'clock p.m. However, he told police it was when he was wrapping up his patrol shift that he discovered David's body. And finally, David told Rick sometime in the few days before he was murdered that if anything happened to him, it was Harry Funston. If the police were really hoping to find something on Funston, what exactly was it that they didn't already have? And if they were hoping to sweep the whole thing under the rug, they certainly succeeded.